Hi there. This week's session is Antimicrobial Resistance, an Emerging Global Health Threat, and it's chaired by Maha Talat from Egypt. Keep in mind that if you want to listen to one specific speaker, please use the chapter markers. If you want to see the presentations of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for WSC Spotlight there. Maha, over to you. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Uh, welcome all worldwide audience and participants in this, to this important Congress. Uh, I'm Mahatalat. I'm the Regional Advisor for EMR and IPC at the WHO Regional Office, Eastern Mediterranean Region in Cairo, Egypt. I would like to welcome you all to session three of uh, the conference, Antimicrobial Resistance and Global Health Threat. Uh, we have a group of very interesting presentations provided by eminent uh, worldwide scientists and uh, start by introducing the first presentation with the title Keynote, One Health Approach to AMR and Global Health Threats, provided by Dr. Ilaria Kapua from the Emerging Pathogens Institute, University of Florida, United States of America. The floor is yours, Ilaria. Thank you very much, Mrs. Chairman. Thank you very much to uh, our hosts, and uh, it is a great pleasure to be here, and uh, it is an extremely exciting moment for me because I am a virologist, and I am here talking to an, a, a group of people who are interested in sepsis and in bacteriology. But, but, but I think I have a case for you, and so... Please uh, try and follow me uh, in my trail of thought because I think we have a fantastic opportunity which lies uh, in, in the midst of the fog, the energy, and the despair that COVID-19 has caused. So I will start with a picture of Alexander Fleming, who is the, dis the, the, the person who... Uh, discovered penicillin and also uh, was awarded a Nobel Prize for this, who actually identified antimicrobial resistance right at the start. From day one, he uh, was um, so, uh, uh, he had learned so much about his discovery that he had actually pushed his discovery a little bit further. Uh, he was able to understand that educated bacteria wouldn't find their way to fight antibiotics and antimicrobials. And this is what I will talk to you about. This slide is about how AMR has shown us that it has a circular nature. In many, many representations of AMR, we, we see how um, this phenomenon passes from animals to humans, to the water, to the hospitals, to the soil, to the plants, back into humans and back into animals. And um, even the WHO, yes, that was the slide that I was talking about, actually depicted it as a circle. Um, I have looked into uh, how has uh, health been imagined in a circular manner, because we know we have 
circular economy, we have circular agriculture, but we don't have circular health. And so I looked back into old dusty books and into ancient literature next to find out that the uh, ancient Greeks had actually a very integrated uh, view of health. They had a central part which had uh, the world, mundus, annus, time, and home, and homo, man. And then a series of external variables, which, according to the ancient philosophers, uh, influenced our health. And the first one is, of course, air. Does air influence our health? Yes, it does. The second one uh, is um, water, aqua. Uh, this element, of course, next slide, please. This element, of course, is uh, uh, extremely interconnected. The water that we flush down the toilet is the water that we drink. Um, we, we have uh, a serious problem with pollution, with pollution of seawater, with pollution of fresh water. Water can become powerful, water can become poisonous. And um, so also this element is an element that influences our health. But it is also land that influences our health, the quality of the land, the quality of the soil, the quality of the products that come out of the land. We receive globalized uh, vegetables and fruits and meat from all over the world, and that the quality of those fruit and of those vegetables, of those plants, uh, the solidity of that soil uh, from all of those elements depend our health. Next. And the last uh, cornerstone of this beautiful picture is fire. And fire, if you think about it, can be reflected in modern times with heat, the sun, global warming, but also the fires. The fires are devastating uh, the United States. They are devastating. They have devastated Australia. And of course, these powerful fires influence our health. They influence the air, they influence biodiversity, and they contribute to uh, a general erosion of the planet resources. Next. And so as we look at uh, antimicrobial resistance, antimicrobial resistance is actually the perfect example to look at health in a circular manner. And this is a, a call for um, all of you that understand the complexity of antimicrobial resistance, or maybe that, that uh, need more elements to understand the complexity of antimicrobial resistance. Um, and why is this call coming now? Because COVID-19 is truly an epochal event. Um, it has stopped the world for a while. Um, it will change the world economy. And while we continue to wash our hands and we uh, distance and we stay at home if we have a fever and a cough, we have to come to terms with the fact that we are in the middle of a pandemic and we are, um, we are ready to learn from this pandemic and this experience. So 
there is a saying that is, every cloud has a silver lining. I believe that the pandemic cloud has a rainbow within. And the rainbow within is that it can help us to understand why we need to advance health as a system. Within the sustainable development goals, we should be aiming at co-advancing the health of humans, animals, plants, and the environment. And we can do this with a circular approach. If we look at all the elements that I mentioned and see how they influence our health, and we put as a node big data, we can start looking at health as one big puzzle. And this is where we need to go with the increasing computing capacity, the increasing data availability, and the need we have to not go back where we were before the pandemic. So uh, a few words on big data. How can big data transform how we look at health? Let me tell you that at the moment, the definition of health, which has changed in time, we know it has only in recent times included mental health, uh, is currently applied to only one species inhabiting the planet, Homo sapiens. And given that the health of Homo sapiens is interconnected and interdependent with that of other animals, plants, and the environment, it would be, seem reasonable to try and apply a circular, circular approach, which is more respectful of natural balances and other species. We do have the data. And here, uh, next slide, and this brings me to my last slide, which is three ideas uh, which uh, spur from the COVID-19 pandemic on AMR. So now is the time to monitor if improved and increased hygiene measures have an impact on AMR and on hospital-borne infections. I have done extensive literature research on this and have not been able to find a consensus yet. And so this is the time to really look into what is happening. Um, it is a moment in which we have to push and expand uh, public health measures, um, including uh, washing our hands and flu vaccination and several other uh, public health measures which could have uh, positive long-term effects. And then uh, COVID-19 has forced us to conduct a real-life experiment on which was inimaginable only a year ago. It has highlighted the fragility of some systems and we need to address these fragile systems. But above all, it provides us with an excuse. And this excuse we can use to finally embrace sustainability. Thank you very much. And I wish you an excellent rest of the meeting. Thank you very much, Ilaria, for this uh, interesting presentation. And I'm very, very impressed with the concept of the circular approach uh, for health that uh, you introduced. Uh, 
Um, we have many comments from the audience uh, and they are all uh, showing uh, like uh, really interest in knowing more about uh, the, what you have uh, presented. Unfortunately, uh, because of the time, uh, we will proceed to the second uh, presentation. Uh, and the second presentation title is Novel Medicines Project Driving Reinvestment in Research and Development and Responsible Antibiotic Use. And this is going to be provided by Dr. Stefan Harbert, the Infection Control Program, Geneva University Hospital, Switzerland. Over to you, Stefan. Thank you very much, Maha. Um, good morning, good afternoon to all colleagues. Uh, it's a pleasure to present this uh, short presentation about driving reinvestment in research and development and responsible antibiotic use. Uh, so this is a more technical uh, talk about the Drive a B project was IMI funded uh, over three and a half years and finished about uh, a year and a half ago. So I will uh, present you some of the outputs, especially concerning the incentives that we need to really revitalize the antibiotic R&D pipeline over the next um, two decades. So as you all know, this is quite clear that our current pipeline for truly innovative antibiotics in uh, different stages of R&D is insufficient, especially when we talk about the truly novel antibiotics that target critical WHO priority pathogens, especially on the gram-negative side. So therefore, uh, this Driver B project looked into potential solutions, how to uh, provide incentives that this situation could be changed, and we came out with four major ideas of incentives that would be the most effective in stimulating the entire antibiotic R&D pipeline, but also ensure access and sustainable use over the next decades. So the first two are the so-called push incentives, more early at the R&D stage, so grants, for instance, pipeline coordinators, that means governmental or non-profit organizations that uh, track the antibiotic pipeline, identify gaps, and uh, provide support. But then also the pull incentives, and I will talk about that in more details, like uh, market entry rewards, very controversial financial instruments to pay um, companies for the development of uh, very innovative drugs. And then finally, something very important, the long-term supply continuity model that is really uh, targeting um, on, on, on providing a supply of important generic antibiotics uh, for long periods of time without any kind of significant uh, shortages. So, of course, these different um, mechanisms of re-incentivizing, uh, they go hand in hand. There is no one single solution. So, of course, everybody tries to find the right combination and because these different incentives uh, target different uh, moments in the R&D pipeline, as you can see on this slide, uh, so, for instance, grants, they come uh, very early on at the basic science uh, stage versus the market entry rewards. Of course, they concern more the later stages of uh, uh, um, antibiotic approval. Um, so, if we go into details, number one, very easy, that, of course, we should uh, provide a strong incentive uh, uh, to basic research in form of grants. This is something where we have already quite important uh, investment all around the world, but definitely we need more coordination. And yes, there could also be room for further targeted funding to make sure that the 
the developments, the scientific work is really targeting the unmet clinical needs. Then pipeline coordinators, that's something very important that has uh, grown over the last five years. An example is, for instance, Carbix or uh, GARD-P. These are uh, non-for-profit um, institutions that address uh, different uh, public health priorities where they, um, there are, is insufficient investment and they try to coordinate the allocation of resources to fill the priority gaps. So the key functions of these coordinators include the gap analysis, providing uh, financing, but also trying to coordinate with the different stakeholders, public and private, and try to be some deal makers. Um, I don't have time to go into any details, but as an example, uh, a recent one is the AMR Action Fund, that also tries to, to bridge the gap in antibiotic R&D and, uh, and provide more interesting conditions um, to reestablish what they call an innovative ecosystem. This fund has been created recently. It's mostly supported by uh, pharmaceutical uh, industry partners, but there are also some philanthropies and uh, development banks that are included in this kind of uh, uh, organization. Then the third a major incentive that uh, we try to develop, again, this is a pretty controversial subject, that are the market entry rewards. Uh, the background idea is that currently the market incentives are not stimulating enough innovation because, of course, if we have novel drugs, uh, currently we always uh, try to uh, uh, be very careful about the use of these novel drugs. So there is uh, very little um, uh, marketing pressure, let's say, that uh, is successful in convincing physicians to prescribe these novel drugs like ciftazidine, avibectum, uh, like they did 30, 40 years ago with the other broad-spectrum antibiotics. So uh, companies earn not enough um, on these kind of drugs, so therefore there could be a payment, like a bonus, that is provided by uh, governmental agencies, by public money, to uh, tell companies, okay, if you provide and if you develop a very novel drug, then um, you get a sort of a bonus payment up front uh, or even later that uh, ensures that you have enough uh, return on investment. But there should be strings attached. Uh, as listed here, um, the market entry rewards should be targeted. They should be transparent, sufficient and supportive, truly supportive of innovative uh, uh, research. There are two Models for these market entry rewards, without going into any uh, health economic details, there is a fully delinked model where all revenues uh, associated with the chosen drug would come from payments uh, uh, over the lifetime of the patent. So here there would be no uh, additional income from sales, whereas the partially delinked model that is shown here would allow annual sales also to uh, uh, fill uh, the pocket of the companies. So here there would be a uh, sort of a, a starting payment bonus um, at the beginning, but then over time the annual sales would uh, jump in to, to make sure that uh, the companies get enough return on investment. So these kind of models are extremely controversial. I can just tell you that uh, uh, when you talk to different stakeholders and partners that there is no real consensus on, on these kind of mechanisms. However, there is maybe a little bit more consensus on the long-term supply continuity model, which means that we sh 
everybody agrees that there are some rarely used antibiotics that are still essential, that are very important, or there are more commonly used antibiotics that uh, experience from time to time severe drug shortages and uh, will uh, influence the clinical uh, prescribing practices quite substantially. Lately, there has been, for instance, a, quite a substantial Ipiracillin tazobactam shortage that really impacted clinical care uh, all over the world. So this supply continuity model is intended um, to, to make sure that there is uh, no major interruption in drug supply, that there is no major shortage uh, by providing some sort of reward uh, if a company um, is providing this kind of supply on a long-term basis. So an example here, what's happened recently, this is in German, but I will just quickly explain the uh, Sando uh, company that is a daughter of Novartis. They were about to completely stop production of penicillins, amoxicillins in Europe and to uh, delocalize uh, to China. But the company, together with the Austrian government, decided to keep uh, the production of uh, penicillin in Austria. They invested 150 million euros um, to make sure that the production site is up to date and that uh, there is some safe uh, production within Europe uh, so that uh, we do not depend uh, from China for uh, importation of these essential drugs. Also a little bit maybe influenced by the recent COVID uh, crisis. Of course, all these incentive models have to be linked to sustainable use uh, measurement, measures and guidelines, but that's a little bit beyond the scope of my talk. Um, if you're interested, I could provide you more details uh, uh, outside of this um, presentation. And then also very importantly, of course, is the question of equitable availability. As you all know, when there are new drugs getting on the market, um, low and middle income countries are predominantly the last countries uh, that receive the new patent protected antibiotics. So here, uh, if uh, companies enter some of these incentive plans, especially the market entry rewards, of course, uh, there needs to be some obligations making sure that uh, low and middle income countries have also access to those uh, drugs by providing some specific uh, obligations as listed on, on this slide here. Also, making sure that there is some um, antibiotic-specific policy guidelines through, for instance, the essential medicines list to make sure that uh, even in these low- and middle-income countries, there is a minimum of antibiotic stewardship and that there is not complete uh, overuse and misuse of those uh, new drugs because there is a lack of, uh, of monitoring. Um, also, in addition, of course, we the Driver B project suggested uh, strong or stronger governance models for, for these kind of R&D activities around the globe to create new international bodies that really try to coordinate and make sure that there is not, not this kind of heterogeneity across different countries in Asia, North America, Europe, uh, related to um, trying to incentivize R&D. Also, uh, need of increased coordination based on some of the existing organizations and, for instance, also, for instance, the uh, G20 Global R&D Collaboration Hub could be considered one of those um, um, uh, uh, institutions that could help to coordinate. It, so, it sounds like uh, I, I'm dreaming, but as you know, I, I'm working in Geneva and we have the CERN, which is this uh, collider uh, experimental institution with more than 7,000 employees, a budget of over $1 billion, created 50 years ago. 
with people coming from all over the world, world helping to just find these kind of nanoparticles. So maybe uh, as a dream, maybe we could uh, make sure that in the in the future we have this kind of international collaborative instrument that uh, helps to develop a new antibiotics uh, that are truly needed by, by our patients around the world, in particular, of course, for the WHO uh, um, priority pathogens. So to finish uh, this presentation, for those who are interested, um, we published a final report of this Driver B project uh, called Revitalizing the Antibiotic Pipeline. You can see here the, uh, the, the link. Um, and of course, I remain available for further questions or interaction with uh, some of you. I would also like to thank, of course, all colleagues, a lot of colleagues who contributed to the Driver B project, uh, both from the uh, academic and also from the industry side to generate those uh, recommendations. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Stefan, for uh, the presentation. Uh, we do have here uh, one or two questions. Uh, there is a question or a comment on um, how much new antibiotics uh, for low-middle income countries are needed if still there are not proper diagnostic solutions to ensure stewardship uh, programs and others? Uh, over to you, Stefan. Yeah, definitely we need novel antibiotics. So there are, as you know, antibiotics already in the pipeline, uh, in the advanced phase three pipeline, but they, they are pretty close to pre-existing uh, compounds. So definitely, if we want to make sure that uh, clinical care is not uh, in danger, uh, experts think that we need for the next 20 years, three, four, maybe five truly innovative new antibiotics to treat gram-negative bacteria. It's uh, maybe a little, little bit of wishful thinking, uh, but I think that just developing one single new class of antibiotics would not be enough. Um, thank you very much. We have also uh, another question uh, saying uh, uh, many people are currently engaged in the research or the work uh, on EMR. Um, how, what is the rule from your point of view uh, that what researchers have or scientists have in supporting the work to get more targeted funding and how to ensure the equitable availability of new drugs for low-middle-income countries? O over. Wow. <laughs> so these are two questions. So the first question is, of course, how can we engage? And I think that we just have to look at the unmet clinical needs and make sure that, of course, we try to convince large funding organizations to provide uh, some of the basic funding to have high quality uh, research, basic research, like it is done now at the moment in a very spectacular way for COVID, you know, and um, you could even look at other areas like TB research, where there has been a steady flow of funding over 30 years. And I think we need the same for AMR. For the equitable uh, access to these novel antibiotics, your second question, honestly, I don't have a perfect solution because I'm not, I'm not a dreamer. You know, everybody, all the companies in, in theory, they say, yeah, if we have novel drugs that got some real um, governmental and, and public money to develop, yes, we make sure that these monies, uh, that these drugs get also to low and middle income countries. But in reality, I'm not sure how this will really function because I have to also admit, at least to my knowledge, in many middle income countries, 
there are pretty weak antibiotic stewardship structures. So uh, that means that if you give those drugs to some of these uh, countries, for instance, Russia, uh, I'm not so sure whether there will be reasonable and uh, judicious use of these novel drugs. So therefore, I don't have a perfect answer to that uh, to make sure that the countries that are um, not high income have um, uh, full access to these novel drugs. Over. Thank you, uh, Stefan, for this uh, answer. And I also echo what you've said uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, the limited antimicrobial stewardship programs in most of the countries of uh, low income. And uh, uh, at, at, at any time new drugs will be available, I believe that uh, there will be the same ways of uh, using uh, those new drugs inappropriately. And then I don't think that the, the solution, uh, is, this is going to be the solution for it. Um, I, I think we also have a uh, maybe one last question before we move to the uh, next presentation. Um, there is a question about uh, how many antibiotics with novel mechanisms are in the pipeline, if you can comment on this. On the gram-positive side, there are at least two. On the gram-negative side, uh, in, in, in very advanced clinical development, there is none. There was one that un unfortunately last year got uh, retracted in a very advanced uh, uh, Phase three clinical trial was a um, targeted anti-pseudomonas agent, but there were too many side effects. It was a polypeptide. So unfortunately, uh, when we look really what's very close to market approval or what has been approved already over the last 12, 18 months, zero. There have been some drugs, as I mentioned before, but they are very close cousins to already pre-existing drugs. Over Thank you very much uh, uh, for this uh, presentation and thank you for taking the questions of the audience. Uh, I think now we can proceed to the third presentation uh, in this session. Uh, the title of the presentation is Cost-Effective Interventions to Combat AMR. Uh, we have Dr. Imran Hassan as the presenter and Dr. Imran is from the International Center for Diarrheal Disease Research in Bangladesh. Over to you, Dr. Imran. Thank you uh, for your nice introduction. Uh, actually, uh, I would like to thank the organizer for inviting us to present on cost-effective interventions to combat AMR. Uh, Dr. Jail Islam was supposed to present this uh, topic and as his mother is sick, I am presenting on behalf of Dr. Islam. So, good morning, good afternoon, Good evening to distinguished audience around the world. Antimicrobial disease uh, infections are estimated to cause 700,000 deaths each year globally, and which is supposed to reach 10 million, with additional 100 trillion cost, 100 trillion US dollar cost if we fail to contain AMR. As per World Bank, an additional 28 million people will be forced into extreme poverty by 2050 if we fail to contain AMR. And so far, we have reports from 123 countries which have reported extensive multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. And what is most alarming is that we do not have new class of antibiotics. Still some are in pipeline, but uh, not in the market since 1980s. The number of deaths attributable to a 
AMR it, every year by 2050, it is uh, comparable uh, between North American countries and Europe, but which is worse in African countries and um, Asian countries. In particularly in Asia, uh, the number of deaths would be around 4.73 million and in Africa, 4.15 million. So development of AMR in Salmonella typhi is the showcase example of evolution of AMR. We can see uh, in 1948, the efficacy of chloramphenicol was discovered and right after two years, uh, in 1950, chloramphenicol resistance was reported. And in an evolution process in 2014, we found that cetraxone was effective and uh, right after two years in 2016, cetraxone resistance were reported from different countries. Regarding economic cost of AMR, if we fail to contain AMR, the world real GDP uh, is supposed to decline significantly by 2050. And even if we contain the AMR partially, still there would be a remarkable decline in world GDP. We can classify the economic cost uh, at patient per perspective, hospital perspective, and societal perspective. Like, uh, from the patient's view, like uh, it increased, mo increases morbidity and mortality, and uh, especially in the developing countries, if someone dies, the whole family suffers and forced into uh, extreme poverty. And the higher, uh, the second line drugs, and uh, they have higher toxicity and direct non-medical uh, patient care costs due to longer hospital stay. And the, from the hospital perspective, uh, if you fail to contain AMR, there would be additional cost of surveillance and containment programs. Uh, the second line antibiotics are, uh, they cost higher price, additional diagnostic tools would be needed, and there would be uh, additional uh, investment in isolation facilities. And when a patient stays longer, uh, the cost gets higher. And from societal perspective, uh, there would be hamper in trade and tourism. There, uh, there, uh, we also need alternative drugs. We uh, implications for medical services. Productivity would be lost due to morbidity and mortality. So, what are the actions uh, we need to uh, combat AMR? We use uh, a word holistic invariably, and uh, for containing AMR, we need holistic approach, like from personal perspective, from community mobilization, from uh, involvement of countries and governments, intergovernmental organizations. So we need holistic approach. Uh, we need to optimize use of antibiotics from consumer level, from prescriber level. Uh, we need cheap and uh, rapid diagnostic tests uh, for example, especially in uh, low- and middle-income countries, uh, at the primary care level, there is no laboratory facility to see susceptibility tests for antimicrobial agents. So the physicians or clinicians are forced to prescribe empirical antimicrobial therapy. So we need laboratory facilities. Uh, we need cheap diagnostic, uh, cheap rapid diagnostic tests. We need uh, new antibiotics, antibiotics, alternative therapies, especially vaccines. Uh, we need infection prevention control measures. Uh, we need uh, 
improved awareness and education at all level from personal to policy makers we need to um, uh, uh, in some countries there are already existing uh, policies to combat amr but which are not um, implemented strictly so uh, these policies should be implemented strictly and the funding agencies should uh, uh, patronize uh, research on novel drugs and no novel antimicrobial agents interventions to combat amr like uh, restriction policies and most of these restriction policies these studies reported uh, those were hospital based restriction policies and those were found uh, effective like evans and colleagues introduced uh, hospital based restriction policy and they found that restrictions were effective in reducing injudicial prescribing clemo and colleagues uh, they also reported uh, that after implementing the restriction policy uh, the number of cases of clostridium difficile associated diarrhea was declined uh, another intervention uh, would be prescriber education in united states uh, gonzales and colleagues they implemented uh, patient and clinician education program and uh, after uh, implementation of of this program they found that the injudicious uh, antibiotic use declined from 74% to 48%. Another Australian study reported that uh, after implementation of such uh, prescriber education program, uh, it, it, it saved around 3.19 million Australian dollar over two years. Combination therapies. Scarf Stain and colleagues, uh, they examined the cost effectiveness analysis of different combination therapies uh, with clytromycin and they found that uh, to combat Mycobacterium avium complex in AIDS patients, it was uh, cost effective. Another study reported uh, Vakil and colleagues that combination antimicrobial, antimicrobial therapies prevented the emergence of AMR. Vaccines. Uh, vaccines uh, could be the potential uh, could play a potential role in combating AMR, uh, like uh, pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. Uh, Jimenez and colleagues uh, they reported that uh, with a, an efficacy of 66 percent, uh, the net benefit of uh, that vaccine it was uh, 127 million US dollar with a cost benefit cost ratio of 2.3. And benefit per person was around two thousand six hundred US dollar. Antibiotic resistance in the COVID nineteen uh, and uh, the data we presented is like pre pandemic data, and uh, uh, we all know the, uh, the injudicious misuse and overuse of antibiotics during this COVID nineteen era. Especially uh, some of the antibiotics uh, I would like to name azithromycin and amoxicillin. Uh, these antibiotics went uh, out of market uh, due to infodemic, uh, due to electronic media and social media. And another uh, uh, cause could be like a lack of uh, or inadequate COVID-19 testing. Uh, for example, in the context of developing countries, uh, if you go for COVID-19 testing and it, it takes around three to seven days to get your report. And uh, the meanwhile, uh, 
the prescribers they are uh, over prescribing antibiotics and uh, the consumers they are even without a prescription they are using antibiotics at home future directions to uh, combat we need uh, uh, collaborative research we need collaboration between governments we need collaboration between academicians and clinicians uh, we need holistic approach to combat amr um, we have some advances in genetics genomics and computer sciences and we need to utilize this advancement uh, to identify new diagnostic tools and uh, rapid diagnostic tools and uh, especially in the context of developing countries we need to invest more in sanitation and basic health infrastructure as it is supposed to be the most uh, cost effective uh, interventions to combat amr in conclusion uh, as i said like amr cannot be managed personally we need uh, collaborative approach we need uh, integrative approach and um, amr in any corner of the world it's a potential threat to the entire world so we need to act like one and uh, um, amr in any corner would uh, affect the whole world so i would like to thank the organizer for giving us the opportunity to to talk on cost effective interventions to come to combat antimicrobial resistance over you uh, thank you very much uh, imran for your presentation and uh, we do have a couple of uh, uh, quick questions um, there is a question uh, asking about uh, what investment plans are put in place to ensure uh, subsidization of availability of antibiotics and diagnostic tools in Asia and Africa um, as they are more affected by AMR? Okay, um, we need uh, more research like uh, BMGF, they are funding a lot of, uh, uh, last year uh, they had a call on uh, research funding to combat AMR, uh, to combat uh, AMR, Salmonella in AMR. And I think uh, um, we need a collaborative approach. The government should implement uh, strict policies. The government can also fund in, in, uh, in this rapid diagnostic tools. Uh, over to you. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Um, we also have uh, uh, two questions. The first one is, what about combating EMR through uh, food uh, and agriculture? Before I go to the other question, over to you. Yeah, uh, as I mentioned, like we need holistic approach. Uh, besides personal perspective and hospital approach, we need uh, um, to combat EMR in the environment. So. Uh, Definitely, we need holistic approach. Uh, okay. Um, it, the, there is also a question regarding the, the subject of the presentation, the cost-effectiveness interventions. Uh, in low-middle-income countries, as was mentioned uh, in, in, uh, uh, in the session, for in some of the presentations, prioritization of interventions to combat AMR uh, has to be done. Uh, uh, any any idea uh, how this prioritization would be done 
based on the costs and the effectiveness of these interventions? Over to you. Um, yeah, uh, especially in the context of developing countries, the prioritization is uh, very much essential. And I think, uh, firstly, uh, the government should, or uh, the research agencies should uh, implement uh, on basic sanitation and hygiene measures as it, it is evidenced to be the most cost-effective interventions and then uh, investing on vaccines and then uh, the other measures to combat. So uh, firstly on basic sanitation and hygiene measures and then vaccines. Uh, okay, uh, the last question. Uh, you talked about uh, IPC programs as one of the interventions to combat AMR. So the question is saying, uh, how can we assist healthcare workers, especially those in primary healthcare, to appreciate the importance of IPC and also the need for senior management uh, managers to be fully engaged in IPC in healthcare facilities? Over to you. Um, during the uh, undergraduate or postgraduate uh, education, uh, we can introduce IPC. Uh, I think uh, there are some courses on IPC, but uh, these are uh, not uh, to that extent that is needed. So I think in, uh, in the undergrad and postgrad medical education, the IPC courses should be introduced and practical sessions, hands-on training should be provided to the healthcare workers. And uh, what I would like to add that uh, most of the trainings, they are focused on clinicians or physicians and sparing the allied staffs like nurses or uh, ward boys. So uh, it needs training uh, to the entire team from physician to the ward cleaner. Uh, I think uh, it can help. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. If I can add uh, to uh, your response uh, regarding IPC, I think to uh, increase the awareness of uh, leaders and directors uh, of IPC, we, countries need to have data on the burden of healthcare-associated infections to, to utilize for advocacy and showing the importance of IPC in reducing the spread of those infections and for uh, uh, resistant uh, healthcare associated infections and other infections also in the uh, community. Thank you very much, Dr. Imran Hassan, uh, for the uh, nice presentation and the uh, uh, discussion. And um, I think we can now move to the fourth presentation. Uh, the title of the presentation is AMR in Neonates and Children with sepsis in low-middle-income countries. Uh, the presenter is Dr. Mark, Mike Chorlin, St. George University Hospitals, NHS Foundation Trust, the United Kingdom. Uh, the presentation is a pre-recorded uh, presentation. Please, over to the organizers to start. Thank you much indeed for asking me to talk today on the critically important area of antimicrobial resistance in neonatal in children with sepsis in the low-middle-income so there has been a number of studies recently that have come through to identify the sheer burden of antimicrobial resistance and the threat this now plays to access to infective treatment for sepsis, particularly from neonates. One of the studies that really brought this home uh, more recently was the Denny study from uh, neonatal sepsis in hospitals in Delhi. 
uh, looking at 15,000 babies admitted to their neonatal intensive care units. This study uh, identified that the pathogens that are being identified now in neonatal sepsis, Acinetobacter and Klebsiella dominating in hospital setting with also E. coli and Pseudomonas. Many of the bacteria uh, pathogens showed a very high degree of resistance with uh, a high case fatality rate. And you can see that for Acinetobacter, the rate's resistance to um, cephalosporins and uh, is now extremely high with a, a very high case fatality rate. There are other studies that have uh, reviewed um, the uh, percentages of resistance uh, from bloodstream infection in Africa and Asia. And uh, for Asia in particular, uh, particular again for Klebsiella, resistance rate to third generation chemosporins and first line antibiotic treatments, WHO for sepsis and pungent, is now uh, up to 80% in many cities. There are other studies, ANISA um, in observational studies and uh, the trials, AFRINEST and SAT in particular, that have uh, identified the causes of neonatal sepsis and resistance rates in the community setting. There are uh, individual country studies, but very few multi-center observational cohort studies of the neonatal sepsis uh, in uh, the hospital setting and to try and identify what are the pathogens and what are the resistance in those settings. It also has to be recognized that though we don't know what is the, which is the most important uh, component of the burden of AMR in these settings, some of this will be maternal carriage of uh, multi-resistant gram-negatives, some of it will be acquisition at the time of birth as because of increasing uh, uh, facility-based births globally, and some of it will be postnatal acquisition. But either way, a nosocomial infection in babies and young children is very different from uh, healthcare-associated infections in adults. In adults, a pattern, a different pattern of uh, intra-abdominal infection, hospital-acquired pneumonia, uh, complicated urinary tract infection is seen. But in babies and, uh, and infants, uh, healthcare-associated infection is much more commonly bloodstream infection. And for Klebsiella and, and the other pathogens, but this is associated, of course, clearly with a higher mortality. So HAI is BSI equals high mortality with multidrug resistant pathogens. This is more emphasized by um, the recent data from the CHAMP study. This is a uh, gate-supported uh, study of, of uh, trying to determine the pathogens that are associated with mortality in the uh, of children and babies who have died in the community setting using um, minimally invasive tissue sampling techniques. Um, there's a complicated process by which um, pathogens uh, are, are um, identified as being important in the causal pathway of the death. But the early data from the study um, recently identifies Klebsiella as one of the most important uh, pathogens in the causal pathway being identified in you know, two-thirds of, of both young infants as well as children. Klebsiella was recognized as a pathogen for, for neonates, but the CHAMPS data has re-evaluated Klebsiella's role in uh, young children, many of whom presented with the clinical signs of pneumonia uh, um, uh, in the community setting. This is early data, it should be treated with caution, but one, if this uh, is confirmed, as CHAMPS expands up into other countries and other sites, um, then this will reevaluate um, uh, the importance of AMR in a community presentation um, and, and the role of multidrug resistant gram negative pathogens in, uh, both in that setting. 
One of the problems, I think, for pediatric sepsis in in LMIC setting is this just limited data. So uh, this is a systematic review and meta-analysis of uh, the studies for pediatric sepsis, which recently published, and identified relatively few studies uh, that um, were eligible for the uh, the systematic review and meta-analysis, and that most of these were conducted 15 to 20 years ago, and we could identify no recent study, um, large prospective observational cohort study that will inform um, under the importance of the different underlying conditions, the treatment and predictors of mortality. So we have very limited uh, data in, in this uh, recent data in this area. We have data on antibiotic treatment from point prevalence survey data. One has to be cautious about PPS because, again, this is biased towards tertiary hospitals. But as you can see in high-income countries and in, you know, for neonates, um, then uh, penicillin, ampicillin, gentamicin um, for WHO first-line treatment for neonatal sepsis is still quite commonly used. Whereas at the other extreme, for, for children with pediatric sepsis, um, only 1% of children receive the WHO pediatric sepsis first-line recommendation, pen and gent, and only 13% receive the WHO second-line regimen, ketraxin, kefitaxin. So um, there is a, a, a significant amount of broad-spectrum antibiotic use, including carbapenem use, in nearly all the point prevalence surveys for, for neonates and children uh, globally. So because of this, and to try and inform the design of future hospital-based neonatal sepsis study, uh, GARD-P supported the NEO-OB study, which was a prospective cohort uh, study, uh, babies with significant clinical sepsis. And this is now just completed, uh, recruiting 3,204 babies from 19 sites in 11 countries. I won't go through all the details of this study. It's really just only finished and the, um, and the, obs- and the analysis is ongoing. But you can see the high rates is there in section. But the study does cover both inborn but also babies born um, uh, at home and admitted from the community. Uh, and not surprisingly, um, there was uh, high rates of, um, uh, as well as ampicillin gentamicin treatment, but high rates of broad spectrum antibiotic use, amikacin, meropenem, keftaz, peptaz, um, and as, as it, uh, across all, or pretty well all of the settings um, uh, internationally. And the pathogens, many of the babies were premature, and so coagulous negative staph cons was a probably still a significant pathogen in many of these babies with uh, sepsis. But um, other gram-negatives dominated Klebsiella, Asnetobacter, Staph aureus, which high portion was MRSA, and E. coli uh, as well. Whereas pathogens identified as being important in the community setting, like group strep, were um, obviously less common in this hospital setting. So I think, you know, in conclusion, we can say that neonatal uh, mortality progress is rec- is slow at the moment and antimicrobial resistance is a major threat to achieve neonatal SDGs. But I think emerging data is um, uh, emphasizing the importance of antimicrobial resistance in pediatric sepsis, in particularly in young children and particularly Klebsiella. And this is um, despite the fact that there's very, very few recent multicenter prospective LMC pediatric sepsis. This means that we unfortunately have very limited data on the impact of you know, treatment, antibiotic treatment, concordance on clinical outcome. We don't know uh, what is the impact of, 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 of receiving uh, antibiotics for which your pathogen is resistant.
Glass has you know, collected a lot of uh, aggregate data for um, children and neonates, and this is really important data, but he's now also collecting important early um, hospital, individual patient hospital mortality data. There is very high rates of antimicrobial resistance reported, though this is potentially biased with many confounders, um, and uh, that may encourage more spectrum, more broad spectrum antibody prescribing, which of course may be appropriate, but sometimes may be less appropriate. And we need these large cohort studies to determine what are the modifiable mortality outcomes, where should the intervention be focused. Globally, we have a lot of antimicrobial resistance surveillance programs with GLASS now, but what we really need is clinical surveillance programs where we identify what are the clinical risk factors, what disease, uh, you know, which type of um, uh, disease, underlying disease with the patient presenting with, what, ha what, uh, and, you know, what happened to this uh, patient in terms of 28-day mortality outcomes. And this is the data that we need to try and inform how local and national guidance should reflect varying levels and changing patent resistance to WHOEML access what of antibiotics. The, um, what is important is that uh, WHO is now producing guidance uh, in a handbook for neonates and children and adults in the future next year. And uh, how, this sh how these resistance patterns should feed into this guidance is going to be critical uh, for the future. GARP has a very important strategy which is based on pragmatic, innovative global trials, optimization of prevention strategies, and of equal importance treatment strategies, which include off patent and new antibiotics, focused on trying to um, inform WHO guidance and where combinations of older off patent antibiotics and novel antibiotics should fit into those, those um, uh, treatment regimens in the future. So we want to thank all of the NEOOBS collaborators, the research team, the patient families that made the, the study possible, uh, and also thank you very much for your attention. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mike, um, for the nice presentation. Unfortunately, we will not be able to get any questions uh, to Mike Chorland. Uh, we can proceed to the uh, last but not least presentation uh, in session three. Uh, the title of the presentation is Antimicrobial Stewardship in Limiting Multidrug-Resistant Organisms. And I have the pleasure to introduce Dr. Jamila Salman from the Ministry of Health in Bahrain. Dr. Jamila is an ID physician. She's leading the IPC program and she's leading the antimicrobial stewardship program in Bahrain. Over to you, Dr. Jamila. Thanks a lot, Dr. Maha, uh, for the nice introduction. It's really my pleasure uh, to join um, um, the elite speaker. Uh, the presentation today about the antimicrobial stewardship in limiting the MDRO. Uh, the outline of my presentation will go for the problem of MDRO, and I think the uh, presenter, previous presenter really has um, uh, gone through it and it's really very important to notice. Then the antimicrobial stewardship rule in controlling MDRO and antimicrobial stewardship with COVID-19, that's very important to look into it. Uh, you know, a couple of slides about Bahrain experience and some regional perspective. Uh, in regard to the antimicrobial stewardship, we all know at this stage it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen, but we have certain facts that can lead us and really guide us in how to deal with this problem. 
So uh, the basic basic concept of medicine, and we know it, is really to do no harm at least. And this is what the whole idea about antimicrobial stewardship: how to make what we ever whatever we are doing in daily basis with patient not to really harm the patient at the end. Why we are targeting antimicrobials? Why they are there? Because we know, you know, whatever kind of study you look at it from different regions or from different countries, is that around like 30% to up to 50% of our hospitalized patients are taking antibiotic, and actually third and half of them are inappropriate or unnecessary. And that at the end leads to increase in antimicrobial resistance, morbidity, mortality, the collateral damage, like C. diff, and increase in the cost. So it's really the main driver of resistance at, at large. So we know that the, uh, the emergence of uh, resistance really impact what we are seeing. Most of the hospital-acquired infection that we are seeing are secondary to multidrug resistant organisms. At least most of them are resistant to the first-line antimicrobial uh, therapy. And that's lead to more of uh, increased morbidity, mortality, and hospital care uh, cost at the end. There are major elements. It's gram-positive, it's gram-negative. But, you know, most of the concern we are seeing, probably even our region, uh, is the gram-negative. You know, the escape, what we said, the ACBL, the carbapenem-resistant, MDRO, pseudomonas, and acetobacter. If you look, for example, uh, we are rela relating it, you know, relating the use of antibiotic to the gram-negative, we can look at it a different way. First of all, if you look at the majority of ICU infection, it's really related to the multidrug-resistant uh, negative organism. So that's what we see in our ICU or a high-dependency area. It's very clear. The other part of the story is you not know, seeing the organism per se. If you have acinetobacter, pseudomonas, or Klebsiella, if it is sensitive, the mortality is very low you know, comparing it to the resistant organism. And that's because of the nature of this organism resistant better and because of what I'll show in the next slide, is that if you have a resistant organism, your outcome will be different, which means that inappropriate antibiotic use actually is uh, within, if you have resistant organism, is an independent risk factor almost 3.4 in increasing the risk of death. So the antibiotic leads to resistant, at the same time if you have resistant uh, microorganism in your institution and high, that will lead to more of inappropriate use of antibiotic. So this is another slide which, show you, which showed you that the inappropriate uh, therapy is a major, major risk factor that we can modify it, it's in our hand, and that is where our all efforts for antibiotic stewardship deal with it. Uh, the other, you know, whether you are looking for ESBLs or CREs, and in this study actually, which was published in 2006, looking through the risk factor of having an ESBL producing enterobacteriosis. And if you look at it, prior cephalosporine, prior carbapenem use is really a major factor. If you go for carbapenemase resistant, like carbapenemase resistant Klebsiella and pneumonia, you will see the same factor. If you have prior fluoroquinolone use or prior carbapenemase use, also it's a risk factor of having those MDRO in your institution. Previous study, there are you know, multiple studies that have been published. This is just an example. If you have a restricted use of antibiotic, your rate of MDRO is less than if you have unrestricted uh, use of antibiotic. So if we can put all this into, into, uh, into, uh, into one statement is that 
whether you are using antibiotic inappropriately to lead to resistance at the same time the resistance will use will lead you to more of inappropriate use when we talk about inappropriate use of antibiotic it really has a lot of factors we know as physician we talk about pharmacodynamics pharmacokinetics all really impact how appropriate we are using the antibiotics uh, the, uh, my colleague in previous presentation, they mentioned that really the, the problem of increasing MDRO um, uh, organism in our institution is really not really going hand in hand with what's available from the new antibiotic. Yes, we have a couple of them. Are they covering everything? Are they covering all the spectrum that we needed and how effective are they uh, when we use them? So that leads to concept of antimicrobial stewardship. So at this stage, we know that the appropriate use of antibiotic, it's the core elements, you know, in antimicrobial stewardship. So you have to write, use the right agent, right dose, right time, appropriate duration. So you can decrease the cost, prevent infection, and decrease the resistant pattern in your institution. Uh, you know, the recent guidelines, 2016, from IDSA, they went like, you know, really about implementation, the details of implementation, how do you do it, what you target, and how effective is it in targeting the problem in your institution. So when we talk about quality of care, yes, it's very important. You, when you start your antimicrobial stewardship in your institution, it's all about patient safety, it's controlling costs, yeah, it's important, but at the end, it decreases the resistance pattern. So it's all working together. It's very important when you are doing it, you are looking to the bigger picture. Coming to Bahrain example and regional perspective. In Bahrain, we started our antimicrobial stewardship programs in 2011, actually a long time ago. We started in a small scale and we were developing, uh, developing it by the time. Once we get more confident and how we deal with it, uh, we went to the, uh, the major uh, hospital, teaching hospital, and then to the primary care outpatient setting, which was not really easy and it was not done probably at that time, but we found really good results and now we are at national stage. Uh, a lot of good outcomes of it. We have got, you know, uh, a number of publications in Bahrain just to see what we have and what direction we have to target. The other part of it, we have a lot of collaborative work because people were looking uh, to, the, um, to, the, uh, to the experience. Sharing experience was very, very crucial at that stage what we have and we are learning from the rest. So we have a lot of really sharing with the rest of the world in the region and internationally and with the international societies. So, and really it got a lot of awards uh, regarding this practice from the higher level in our country to uh, international actually uh, recognition. Uh, part of the glass system, we are one of the countries that participated with WHO on the glass system. And, you know, I just showed a couple of examples here. For, for example, this is the acinotobacter. Comparing the upper part is the 2019 and the lower part is the, 2000, um, uh, is the 2018. And there is, you know, the comparison, you know, if you compare both, we did really very well. Not in all of the organism. This is, for example, in Krebsiella pneumonia, but at least we maintain it with the efforts we have with the antimicrobial stewardship. This is the same applied to the uh, gram-positive like staph aureus. We maintain the resistance. And I think we know at this stage, if it's not increasing, this is still a good news. We are all looking to decrease it. We could have through the glass system actually know what's hospital acquired and what's community acquired. And this is where we targeted our outpatient and primary care because we know a large number of our ESBL, E. coli at least, with you know, urine tract infection coming from the community. It's not only antibiotic use in hospital, it's also 
what we have. We have actually um, developed, you know, um, 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 software for Bahrain uh, to uh, include all the hospitals, government and private, and collect all the data and try to analyze it. And actually, this is the details, not probably because this is the largest picture. You see, at one stage, we start to have, you know, most of the governmental hospital, and this is in the main hospital, and we implement the stewardship program. We decrease the antibiotic and we try to maintain it over the last couple of years. At one stage, you will not be able to decrease, decrease it further because you will remain having those patients that are still, you use the antibiotic appropriately to save lives. Um, this is just a bigger picture, how the antibiotic, how you divide them, calculating our uh, daily uh, divided dose and duration of therapy also. Uh, we had the same experience in primary care. Actually, we piloted at the beginning. And then over the last few years, you'll see really a major decrease in consumption. And that really helped us really in decreasing our maintaining our, you know, rate of MDRO in Bahrain. Uh, we moved to antimicrobial stewardship and COVID-19. Really, we are with this pandemic, COVID-19. There are a lot, a lot of issues. You know, this is uh, an article which was published in Journal of Hospital Infection. Uh, but, you know, it's very important. There are a lot of, you know, important factors here. Our experience in Bahrain, we saw that, and there are a couple of literature studies about it, increased use of empiric antibiotic. When you have patients coming with COVID pneumonia, you know, there is trend from the physician to cover them with antibiotic, which is not good in all cases. If there's an antibiotic stewardship, we are, we are maintaining it, but really the focus, you know, what, whether we uh, like it or not, has been deviated to COVID-19 care altogether. The infection control measures, yes, it is much, much better with the COVID-19, all of us know, but at the end of the, at the, end of the, uh, uh, the road, we are talking about the healthcare worker protecting themselves from COVID, uh, getting COVID-19, but at the same time, we are taking about this care, taking care of the same patient, the same cubic, if any one of them develop, you know, ECBL or CRE, it will uh, really reach the other patients if we are not careful. They are getting more immunocompromised in patients with comorbidities with the COVID-19 admissions. And these are the people who actually had previous admission and there have been an antibiotic. So they are at risk also of having it. Prolonged length of stay. We know now at this stage that people who are admitted with moderate severe pneumonia or even critical ARDS, they stay with us more than two weeks. So, and we know that prolonged stay promote more antibiotic and more MDRO. Dealing with the outbreaks. So if you have an ICU and you have one CRE or ECBL or, you know, MRSA, and this is an outbreak within a COVID-19 facility, you have to be very careful to how to address it and deal with it. Uh, actually, WHO, they issue, like, you know, uh, great statements about where uh, to put the stewardship within the COVID-19 pandemic. And it was very clearly to incorporate the advice to incorporate antibiotic stewardship principle within the specific recommendation. And really not to forget about it while we are all busy in combating uh, COVID-19. Uh, the, the, the last part of my presentation actually is the regional perspective. We are all suffering with the MDRO and we know that no single country is exempted. In our region, when I talk about the, the GCC Gulf uh, cooperation countries or even the Middle East countries, we have certain specification. Even the trend of MDRO, whether gram-negative or positive, but we have more problem with the gram-negative. It's different. So there have been a lot of efforts in the region really to target it, to clear, uh, to go around, around, you know, to see and analyze all the data and to see how we can do it better. 
uh, it's very clear. If you look at, you know, the left side of the slide, is the countries, you know, which has really had increased consumption over the last 15 years of antibiotic. You know, it's in our region. There are several, several of them from our region. And in the right side of the slide, this is, you know, this is from the, uh, from the WHO status. You know, we are, you know, trying our best. If you see, like, Bahrain has probably lowered, this is, like, you know, a couple of years' data. But, you know, at the end, still we are facing the same problem, and there are more efforts has to be really uh, taken in consideration in this uh, era. This is another slide also from the WHO and shows through the glass system, you know, the AMR within Eastern Mediterranean region. Still, we have the problem. It has to be addressed. Maybe we have to speed up the rate of even our efforts. If it takes one month to do something, we have to do it in days, and if it's one year, it has to be done in one month. So we are in the region, you know, we collectively um, uh, worked with a group of really the best of, we have experts in the region, we get together. Um, uh, it's, it's a small group representing um, several countries in the region, and we did several efforts. We've been working over the last three years, almost three years, uh, one of the things that we try to do, we did a workshop, try to analyze what's happening, what's our regional challenges. And these are the same as WHO, what they found, there are internal challenges and external challenges that had to be addressed if we are really looking to decrease the rate of MDRO. What we did, we looked at the similarities, what we are as a region have similar, and what are the differences. So we can put like guidance, we can put guidelines, we can help each other. So the country which is more like strong in you know, basic data, basic lab, they can help the other. People had experience in stewardship, they can share their experience with the other countries. So based on this, we looked also at the antimicrobial stewardship program in each country, what's implemented, what's not per country, to see what are you know, the strength and the weakness and to build on it, not to start from really zero. We put five key areas, okay, that can provide solution to the region. You know, it goes in training education, basic elements, uh, building capacity, very, very strong, very, very strong, you know, recommendation. Really, we need a lot. We don't have all the luxury and all the manpower that we need. Then we have to, we recommended also to improve regional surveillance, very important, infrastructure, strengthening and support, and enhancing regional research. You know, if you compare the amount of research getting out of our region, it's really not up to uh, the rate of international, but it's picking up and really we are in a better situation within the last five years. The same group really, we had the collaboration with the BSAC, you know, uh, the British uh, Society of Antimicrobial Agent, and we established a program, Gulf, Middle East, and North Africa Antimicrobial Stewardship Program, if anybody is interested. Uh, we, uh, we work with them, we have it, it really took time, but I think we, we are getting a great feedback from it. And it's helpful because you cannot go to each hospital or each uh, country to teach them what you have, but you can have a platform where you go with the e-learning. And especially with the COVID-19, we are all changing the way we are doing our, um, our work. And, you know, at the end, you know, this is, you know, this was the article that just published, you know, if you like, it's management of infection caused by WHO, critical priority gram-negative organism uh, pathogen in Arab countries of the Middle East. So it really, it really was spent one year to try to reach this, to get the data. The most difficult part of it was really how much basic published data we have about the rate of MDRO in our countries. Really, it was uh, tough, but at the end, you know, we could have get something and it's already uh, published. And in this, you know, that was the most part, what we have exactly. There are some data 
it's really um, you know vary from country to country, but we depend on the published data and the glass system data to help us actually guide our management guidelines. So in conclusion, we know that, you know, that there is a high proportion of resistance, you know, and we are facing it. It's affecting our, you know, health system, the outcomes, the health, you know, uh, cost, morbidity and mortality. The treatment option, running out of it. We have new items, you know, we have new antibiotics, how much it can help. Still, by using them, you know, by using them, you probably lose them at the end. Uh, it's really very important, and I think, you know, everybody agrees, stewardship plus major, major implementation for all measures of infection control to be able to control those MDRO. And really, regard to our region, we really uh, look into more research, uh, more into depth look, analyzing our data, what we have to address all the critical issue. So basically, you have two ways, either to address it, to avoid any crisis, you know, or really to work on it to have a success. Thank you very much for uh, listening and for your attention. Thank you. Um, thank you, Dr. Jamila, for your comprehensive presentation. Actually, we do have a lot of questions. Um, I'm gonna try to pick uh, some of them. Uh, there is a question uh, regarding um, how did you gain the government support for your antimicrobial stewardship programs? Because I guess this, this is faced by many countries where they do not have this political will or political support. So the, the floor is yours, Dr. Jamila. Thank you very much. I, I think it, it's, it's really clear for everybody. Even, even if you go to the CDC guidance, you know, and guidelines for the structure of antimicrobial stewardship, its leadership com commitment is number one. So you can proceed. For gaining, and I think this is where uh, you have to make your business case. If you are starting your antimicrobial stewardship program, you have to, you are the scientific part. You have to make it really um, uh, sound, you know, it's of benefit to everybody. So this is what we did in Bahrain. We started on a small scale. We then built on it. We show the first year hospital management that it's really, it's worth it to invest in antimicrobial stewardship. And then, you know, we prove for them, it decreased the rate of infection, it decreased the cost, which is very important, decreased the length of stay. And then you have to put it in the most, you know, scientific way to the, to the higher authority and leadership in your institution or your ministry of health. And this is where you get the support because you have to make and you have to prove that it really works. And with the efforts you have, it will help them actually to guide the efforts, to guide the manpower or the cost to your uh, project and your program. So a lot of work has to be done by us, by the infection control and the antimicrobial stewardship program, so you can get the help you need. Thank you. Yeah, the, thank you very much. Yeah, you, you talked about the business case that has to, to be put to senior health officials to get their support. And this requires a lot of groundwork, a lot of data collection, uh, showing the case, uh, uh, doing uh, uh, surveillance, doing uh, resistance surveillance, antibiotic use studies, and a lot of work to get the data for each country to utilize for advocacy. Uh, we do have also uh, another question. Uh, you talked about AMS and COVID-19, and we all know from the region that so many antibiotics were used either for prophylactic or inappropriately for the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, any future expectations for what will happen as a result of this uh, use of uh, antibiotics for COVID-19? 
Uh, based on what what we are seeing, really, it depends, you know, because, you know, we have different facilities and different, you know, each facility is for different kind of patients who are mild and moderate or severe and critical. The patients who are in severe or critical and they need more of like uh, ICU care, there is an increased use of antibiotic. And that's for sure. And we started to see, you know, uh, the CRE are showing in the picture. Initially, it was lower, but then it's increasing. At the same time, and I think what we saw in the rest of the hospital, the rest of the hospital, because it was really balancing. We know that we divert a lot of our efforts on combating the COVID-19, but I know that in a lot of health system, they have to cut back in elective admission, elective surgeries. So at the other side of the story, you will have decreased length of stay. People want to go home. They don't stay in the hospital. So that probably will help in decreasing some cases of MDRO. But the care, the care where we're giving in COVID area with the prolonged in ICU, prolonged admission in ICU, I'm sure that it will impact it and we will see increase who are coming up for the patients who are coming out from those facilities. Yeah, so thank you very much. So th this is an interesting vision uh, for the future. Uh, the last, we have one last question uh, regarding uh, what strategies were used to encourage clinicians. Did this focus on the prescribers or supply pharmacy monitoring as uh, they noticed that you have a very positive reduction in use of antibiotics? Over to you. Yeah, um, that, that, that's a very important question. I, I think it's all the above. One thing about this antimicrobial stewardship, it's, you cannot just implement one intervention or initiative and you think it will decrease your antibiotic uh, consumption. That will not work. Uh, it's really, it's really, you have to do a close monitoring from the pharmacy. Yes, the data, how many is used. But to decrease it literally, you need a lot of education. You have to make all the physician as partner in your stewardship program. You have to have regular meeting, regular feedback to be given to them. Uh, if you ask them for, your, for the support and understand your concept, they have to be part of it. They have to have the ownership of being part of the stewardship. Uh, you know, within our field, you know, the field of medicine, we know that, you know, people, they don't like to get like, uh, like orders from other subspecialties. Each subspecialty, they know what they are doing, but to make them, you know, not to enter their area of uh, subspecialty, you have just to deal with them as partners, give them more education and to give them feedback. At the same time, your education has to be very, you know, you know it has to be like continuous. There is no point of giving one lecture or one workshop and go. Because what we notice after we're giving any program of education, the consumption of antibiotic decrease and just leave it for two to three months and again pick up. So you have to be very, very good in tailoring the message, what kind of education, how often you have to give it to really get the cooperation you need. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Jamila. And uh, uh, this was the last question. Before we conclude the session, I would like to thank all speakers for excellent presentations. I'd like to thank all audience for being interactive and providing comments and questions to the speakers. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, and uh, uh, wish you a, a successful continuation of the Congress session. And I'm announcing over this session. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making this event possible. We will continue with Session 4, Sepsis, Ebola, and COVID-19, next Tuesday, October 6, 2020.
The WSC Spotlight is being brought to you free of charge, so if you enjoyed it, please consider donating. See you next week.